All right, it is time. Yet again, December 7th. That is right, December 7th, the day that we'll live in infamy. It is time for Munitions Podcast. I guess that's sort of appropriate, Derek. We're doing Munitions Podcast on December 7th, 2023, uh, where we're talking about uh, all things gun-related. You know, Derek uh, DeBras over at uh, Munitions Law Group, Steve Palmer here at Palmer Legal Defense. We've collaborated to bring you this gun podcast. I don't think anybody else is doing anything even remotely like this where we can talk to you about current events, we can talk to you about legal events, but we're not going to legalize it up too much. Uh, we're going to uh, we're going to translate and give you the gun and munitions information you need. Derek, how's it going today? Good. I just got back from India. Uh, interesting country. Uh, talked to a lot of locals about their gun laws over there, a lack of uh, rights to own firearms, actually. but uh, So they do different. not in India, I presume, have a right to own a firearm. You have to be very wealthy. Very few uh, permits are granted. I smell corruption. Uh, when you hear you have to be very wealthy, <laughs> well, you think corruption. Uh, yeah, my friend uh, Josh, he's a lawyer. Went to law school with him. He's lived there for nine full years now, actually. He's, he's six foot two, white guy, bald, with a giant beard. Everybody over thinks he's a wrestler. Everybody over there thought I was a wrestler. <laughs> so um, people will come up to you and just take pictures of you randomly just because you're different. Um, and I wasn't in Delhi. I was in Hyderabad, which doesn't seem I don't think sees a whole lot of Americans over there. So we were pretty unique. But yeah, no guns. It, it generally was not something that um, anybody had any knowledge of, really. Well, this is an interesting segue because, you know, it, I, I've talked to lots of Europeans about um, different things, whether it's free speech or whether it's uh, uh, governmental action and control and how much power a centralized federal government should have. And they just have a different takeover. And mo- the rest of the world has a different take than the United States. We just have, uh, we don't realize the freedom water we swim in sometimes where we, we take for granted that we have a right to free speech and the government can't stop that. We take for granted that we have this second amendment. Maybe that one we is a little bit more, uh, uh, kicked around these days than, than before. But, you know, we take a lot of our freedoms for granted. And when you start to travel around the world and talk to people from other parts of the world, they don't quite understand what the American position is or why we take such strong positions on this or why we might care so much um, to let the government regulate us in our in our worlds. And uh, I guess it's like uh, trying to prove that water is wet. We have freedom here. We, uh, we have to be careful not to take it for granted. And then when you talk to the rest of the world, not measure ourselves against their standards because, frankly, they suck. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we're going to talk about a, a legal theory today as we get into our, our substance called the logical outgrowth test. And I'll use that phrase now. I think our views on the Second Amendment and the reason we have the Second Amendment is a logical outgrowth of where this country came from, right? Colonialism. So it was really interesting when I was in India, I was actually invited. I'm actually an adjunct professor at a, a law school there called Waxen University, W-O-X-S-E-N. Uh, my friend's a dean there. Um, I encourage anybody that's interested in going to India to study to look up the university. But nevertheless, I, I taught there two different classes on gun law, um, and it was really intriguing to get their questions. Um, two things I'll make note of real quick, Steve. One is why there's so many mass shootings in Ohio. Well, big surprise they asked that. Thanks for the media. Um, and then two, you know, I, I they they asked me just what you're talking about. You know, why our views are the way they are in the Second Amendment. And what I was able to actually resonate with them and connect with them was the fact that when they look at Europeans generally in India, I'm not saying this is across the board, but you got to remember they were a colonialized nation by the British, right? Um, and you're a history major. You probably know that. Of course, you know that. And they don't have um, good feelings about that. So when they see Americans, sometimes they they lump us into that. So I reminded them at the beginning of the class, we come from a similar history in a way. We were colonialized. We, however, fought back with our arms uh, and we were able to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. Um, I'm not an expert on Indian history. I don't know what all happened, but I do know that they had a similar 
uh, force coming against them, namely the uh, the British, and they were being colonialized at the time. So I thought that was interesting to discuss that with them too. Yeah, again, they, they think uh, after a certain period of time, and and people just live their lifestyles, they get used to government regulation, they get used to government corruption, and they you know they don't understand why anybody they don't even know that they're living under it. So the same reason we take yeah. our freedom for granted, mm-hmm. they take their lack of it for granted, and it's. Um, you know, I think you, you make a good point. You know, we 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 preserve and we we believe that our gun rights are precious because of our history, not despite it. And you know, it's like uh, we it was, we were founded on those notions. I hear all the time. Uh, you know, Britain has gun control, and uh, you know they're not allowed. They don't have they don't have these problems. Of blah 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 blah. And I was like, yeah, we left. You know, we yeah right. We, we divorced we, them. We left for a reason, and you know, Americans are unique. Um, we're not perfect, far from it, but we are sort of the 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 world police in a lot of ways, in a lot of in mostly good ways. You know, you can argue all you want about it, but if you uh, if you explore uh, at least modern world history, we're really the only nation that really gets out. You know, we go in, we we help solve problems, and then most of the time we get out of the way. You know, we didn't stick around Europe and occupy. Uh, and, and fight to occupy. Uh, we, yeah. we we stuck around Japan because they wanted us there, actually. But um, but not we didn't stay around forever, and we, we didn't stay around their, as an occupying their, force. Yeah, we gave their government back to them. Yep, uh, and go all the way back. You know, George Washington was given the option to become king, even after all the fighting and all the the years of peril. Uh, after his presidency, he was given the option to, to be king, and he left. He walked away. You know, it's like yeah. uh, we we don't want that, and uh, we've left that, and we enjoy our freedom. So. Uh, that brings us maybe to some discussions. There's been some interesting, just in the last couple of months, uh, legal cases that have emerged, and 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 I think they're going to have some significance. Derek, uh, why don't you start? Yeah, there was one that just came up in the news, uh, national news, uh, within the last probably 48 hours. Um, this involves a, a Catholic nun. I've heard about her for like the last five to ten years. Her name is Sister Judy Byron. Uh, she's the director of the Northwest Coalition for Responsible Investment, or at least at one point was. Uh, I hear, heard about her, excuse me, um, I think it was after maybe the shooting in Florida. Don't quote me on that, but there was a uh, there was an active killer shooting, and I heard an article years ago about her and that she was using her role as a shareholder because uh, Smith & Wesson is a publicly traded company, and she was using her role as a shareholder to basically I wouldn't say cause conflict, but her position is, is to make change, uh, social change within the uh, the industry and within the company itself. So really kind of ingenious in a lot of ways that you find a gun company, say you, you're you pro-gun control, where you find a gun company, buy enough shares to have a voice, and you make that voice heard. Really creative. But what's come up recently is uh, she just filed in the last, I think, few days a derivative action. Uh, Steve, do you want to tell the audience what a derivative action is, or should I? No, go ahead. I mean, basically, what we're talking about, you buy stock in a company, then the company owes you a fiduciary duty to do things right. uh, that are lawful and that aren't going to cause your value of your shares to plummet or to uh, diminish or decrease. And, and in certain circumstances, when the company does things, takes actions to uh, exceed their their lawful scope of activity, or maybe they break the laws by their products, then in certain situations, shareholders can sue the company. So what you have is like the owners of the company, the shareholders actually filing a lawsuit against the company itself. But yeah, it, it's by the company against the company. Yeah. It's, it's weird, right? But yeah, that's right. I think you summarized it perfectly. She's acting on behalf of the shareholders who act on behalf of the company to go after the board of directors saying, you haven't done enough. You haven't done enough with your marketing. You haven't done enough to review your, your, your policies and your procedures. 
uh, and you're exposing us as shareholders and as a company to liability, and therefore we're filing this lawsuit. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how that turns out. My guess is she will not be successful, but uh, we'll see. Well, we'll see what happens. You've got this weird sort of lineup of ironies in situations like this because what they're alleging, what they being these shareholders, and, and this she's not the only one. There's been others that have tried. Uh, what they're alleging is that the gun manufacturers, whether it's a, an actual gun manufacturer or uh, maybe they're just making pieces, parts of guns, that they are, by marketing their products, they are violating laws. So if you're selling, um, for instance, an AR-15 with a 30-round magazine in a place where you're not allowed to have 30-round magazines, or maybe you're not even targeting those places, but your your guns end up there, then there these shareholders are arguing, well, you're subject you're subjecting us to peril because you could be sued uh, or you're violating these laws, and this is going to cause our share values to decrease. And you know the funny thing is, is like the companies would say and turn around and say, well, wait a minute. First of all, these laws are unconstitutional. And we should be able to do what we're doing. We have a constitutionally protected activity. That's why we're a gun manufacturer. So you're suing us for doing the very thing that we that we are put on this planet to do: manufacture and disseminate and market our guns. Um, and then, secondly, if even if even if that that law is in place, we should challenge that law. We should do the opposite of what you're saying, not not acquiesce to it. So you're sort of putting in juxtaposition a shareholder uh, with a company in a way that it's hard to even get your head around. If you buy shares in a company, it's because you want them to flourish and uh, proceed and uh, do well in their marketplace. And these shareholders are saying, wait a minute, we don't want you to market and engage in activity in the marketplace because we don't like guns. It's um, you have to, you have to question the good faith that, but it's not that the, the shareholders owe a fiduciary duty to the company. It's the opposite. So it will be, this is an interesting twist on derivative liability in derivative lawsuits by shareholders. Uh, I will be, and, and like all these things, when, when you start using the law in ways like this, when litigants use the law in ways like this and lawyers do, I actually love it because it really turns things upside down. It forces uh, the, the system to, to react and respond. And I think the, the, a lot of times this stuff backfires. They may expose problems uh, that they didn't want to expose. And this thing, if they win the, even if they win the battle, they may lose the ultimate war mm-hmm. and they may lose some, some of their ability ultimately to actually pursue good faith lawsuits like this. So anyway, we shall see. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll follow it. And uh, so our, our listeners know I haven't had a chance to review the complaint yet, but I intend to do so. And uh, maybe we'll bring this up in a uh, future podcast and just talking about it and give it an update. Yep. Let's do it. Now, the other thing that I saw us, <clears throat> I've been, everybody that listens to us and, and pays attention to guns knows that uh, the New York versus Bruin case out of the United States Supreme court recently that established this, uh, a, a brand new, or at least a, I don't want to call it brand new, but a different test for the constitutionality of regulatory schemes on guns in the Second Amendment uh, called the History, Text, and Tradition Test, where it, it, in theory, the court, if uh, when faced with some regulation that impacts your right to bear arms in some way, they would analyze the regulation not by saying, not by strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, or even rational basis, which are the traditional constitutional standards of review, but rather we're going to look at the history, text, and tradition. How did the, how did our country historically, how did our founders treat similar regulations with respect to guns? And then uh, we're going to judge the, the the regulation by that standard. This has been difficult even for people who are in favor of it to really get their heads around how this is going to go. And in recently, U.S. versus Rahimi, uh, the Supreme Court heard arguments on whether uh, this sort of what we take for granted now, if you have a domestic violence protection order against you, then that becomes an impediment to your right to have and possess guns. Derek, tell us about the regulation, then we'll get into the argument. Yeah, and just real quick, Steve, I, I like to just kind of just um, 
in layman's terms, what, what Steve just said, for those of you that maybe not caught that or understood it. So when we look at the constitutionality of a law, any law uh, at the federal level, historically, we've applied one of three approaches. When we look at the law, we take the law, we say, is it constitutional? Well, we have to have a standard to determine its constitutionality. And I, I like to paraphrase it very simply as the easy, medium, and hard test, right? There's an easy test for the government to pass if basically they have a rational basis for the law to exist, it's going to be constitutional. Constitutional, And then there's the hard test. And the hard test is what's typically called strict scrutiny. And that test basically says um, that there's there's it's got to be strictly construed and in the government's interest has got to outweigh uh, uh, the the harm to the civil liberty. Am I paraphrasing that correctly, Steve? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. yeah, so, I, I like the way you described it. You got the easy test, the medium test and the really yeah. hard test. So, so what Bruin basically said was we're throwing all that out the window. And it's funny, I argued this in a case uh, about 10 years ago in front of the Sixth Circuit. I didn't win it, uh, but I, I I didn't make that argument, so I, I feel vindicated. But what Bruin basically says, that gets tossed out the window. Scalia said in the Heller decision, we're not to do interest balancing when it comes to the Second Amendment. And that's all these tests are. What we're supposed to do is look at the Second Amendment historically and say, hey, historically, would this be considered constitutional? And that's essentially what Bruin it stands for. So... What's the law at issue in current events today that's being challenged? And that is under the Gun Control Act of 1968. So it's a federal law, and it deals with, with, with what is commonly termed protection orders. Now, it's restricted to domestic uh, domestic relationship protection orders. And Steve, if it's okay with you, I'll just read through the law real quick. Yeah. Is that all right? Yep. So basically what the Gun Control Act of 1968 says, and if any of you are legal nerds out there, it's 18 U.S.C. subsection G. And it's G8, G8 disability. There's one through nine, and this is the eighth one. And it basically, or not basically, it does say it shall be unlawful for any person who is subject to a court order that A, was issued after a hearing of which such person received actual notice and at which such person had an opportunity to participate. What that is indicating, hey, due process existed in the process. You have to have due process for us to restrict your gun rights. Okay, let's move on. B is this is the meat and potatoes. In order that restrains such person from harassing, stalking, or threatening an intimate partner of such person or child of such intimate partner or person or engaging in other conduct that would place an intimate partner in reasonable fear of bodily injury to the partner or child. So basically, uh, if you have some sort of family relation to the person or if it's your child and you're restrained from harassing, stalking, or engaging in conduct that would place them in reasonable fear of bodily injury, that order exists. You don't get to have a gun. And that's what um, this case uh, you're talking about, the Ramini case, uh, is addressing, Steve. Yeah. And let's let's kick around some protection order lingo for a second. So I get these calls all the time. Somebody's got a protection order against me. Um, I'm just going to go. And or, or a lot of people tend to just say, you know what? I don't care. I don't ever want to see this person again. Uh, and maybe it's your ex-wife. Maybe it's your ex-girlfriend. Maybe it's your soon-to-be ex-wife or girlfriend. And you just want to get the case over with. So they uh, you just don't even fight it. You don't show up and the court will impose against you a civil protection order in a domestic type situation. Well, these are huge problems for uh, your right to bear arms and your right to possess and and not own necessarily, but possess firearms. Um, so when people when people get these orders and take them for granted, uh, often they they turn around and uh, they're stuck. They have a they have a um, disability that prevents them from possessing guns. And it's really difficult to undo a protection order once it's in place. I mean, if you if you don't fight it and the court imposes it, it's like setting a, setting that aside after the fact is difficult. So what I'm saying is call us if you have one. Don't don't just agree to it. And, and a lot of times these are just weaponized uh, 
these are just weapons in the bigger war. So if it's a divorce pending, one spouse will go get a protection order just to do it. Um, and uh, and often uh, it, people don't even realize the ramifications. But anyway, this case is saying uh, the litigants in this case or the, the challenge in this case is to say, well, under this new Bruin test, which isn't a, uh, a hard, medium or uh, easy test, uh, the history of the Constitution, there's nothing in it that says just because you have some sort of protection order against you. Uh, you shouldn't be able to to possess our own mm-hmm. firearms, um, and and now they're arguing about it. This is sort of like the the precedent was set in Bruin on taking on these various challenges, uh, regulatory schemes on guns, and this is just one of them. I mean, we're we're fighting or we're raising this issue, a very similar issue, Derek. And in, in uh, say, if you have a gun in the car during an OVI or a drunk driving case, or if you've got a prior felony conviction, whether you should not be allowed to have guns. This is this is a case that people are watching for that reason. Um, I didn't watch the oral argument, although we can go back and check the videos or listen to the audio or even read the transcript now. But uh, the commentary is saying that it didn't bode well for the challenge to the law. In other words, it, everybody is predicting that the court is not going to strike down this law. And yeah, that's, that's real. One quick thing, Steve. I, I just want to make sure everybody's aware out there in Ohio. It's really interesting. I'm sure you've dealt with protection orders, civil protection orders. There's a box on this order, and it's a form in Ohio, and it says firearms. Can you own them or not? And if the box is not checked under state law, you can still own firearms even if you have the order. However, and this is where attorneys get themselves in trouble, they don't think about federal law. Federal law doesn't care if that box is checked. It doesn't matter. The mere existence of that order invokes this disability. So I just wanted to throw that out there as you're finishing your analysis Yeah, as well. if you're a lawyer and you see that box, because I get that question all the time, well, they didn't check the box. I couldn't own guns. I said, yeah, but you can't. Because of the uh, there's a federal law that's going to preclude you. So it's, you got state and federal law, but it, the the triggering mechanism here, no pun intended, is the relationship between the parties. Is that right, Derek? Yeah. So it, it's not just any protection order. And for instance, in Ohio, where we're at, there's also a CSPO, which is a civil stalking protection order, which can be levied against anybody, your neighbor, or just some random person. Um, but no, in this situation, as I read the law to you, it's got to be in order from an intimate partner or involving your child or the intimate partner's child. So it's got to be to have that domestic relationship uh, to qualify. Yeah, in Ohio, we call that a family or household member, which is defined so broadly that includes basically everybody that you ever shared a bed with at any time. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, the, the the judges are grappling with this, and I think what they've done is they've created a standard that is uh, yet com- – it's just at the the maybe the threshold of being defined – and how they're going to work through this is is going to be, uh, I think, become apparent in the decision in this case, because you know you've got swing votes. Um, Amy Coney Barrett uh, perhaps might be in the middle. Gorsuch might be in the middle. Uh, people are wondering what Kavanaugh is going to do with this. You know, Kavanaugh raised the question like, well, you know, if, if we strike this, don't we really uh, open up the constitutionality of any law that uh, creates a restriction on the ownership of guns? Sort of like having a felony conviction. Um, oh, maybe we should have that discussion. In my opinion, we should have that discussion. We absolutely but, should, right. And, and <laughs> I'm a libertarian. What do I know? <laughs> no, I think Kavanaugh is not going to care. I think he's open to that. Um, I don't think Gorsuch is. I don't know about Barrett. Um, but I, the government got sort of cocky about this, and they think that they're going to win. Uh, so we shall see. I think the, this court has this court has, uh, has shocked people before, and I'm sure yeah. it, it will again. I, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, I've been, I've been, just, I've had a couple of clients that have gotten close to filing, and they get cold feet at the end. But I really want to sue on nonviolent felons. I, I really don't think they should lose their gun rights. I mean, you got someone who committed freaking mail fraud. Yeah. Right? I mean, come on, they're not a violent person. 
or um, even growing weed. You know, now that I, this is one I've been watching. So somebody's got a, even a federal conviction for growing pot or possessing pot. Um, yeah. And now the laws are, are changing across the country. And as soon as that right. falls or as soon as the federal statute on um, or legalizing marijuana passes, uh, that's going to raise those issues. You know, you, you just yeah. wonder, you got a nonviolent felony 15 years ago or something. Um, is there any reason why you shouldn't be able to possess a gun? And what would the history, text and tradition of the Constitution or of our country say about that? Um, you know. Uh, these are these are things that are going to have to get worked out. This is a they took this case, you know. So I guess people should understand this. The Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, doesn't have to take cases. You know, you ask. It's like if they if they had to take every case, they would never get anything done. It'd be packed. Um, so they chose to take this case, and they chose to take it. I think because they wanted to take on this standard and show that it could be applied uh, in some way that makes some sense. And I'm really really curious how they're going to do it. Any predictions, Derek? On this particular case, you mean? Yeah. Oh, I mean, all the pundits are saying that it's likely to be upheld given how the Supreme Court responded in oral argument. Um, I, I think that there's a good chance they'll uphold it. You know, when we look at the felon argument and whether or not the restrictions on felons can will be upheld, and even in the original Heller decision, there's some discussion on the outskirts of this. In dicta, they and, talked about this yeah. does not mean we're going to review everything, as, as right. sort of what Scalia said. There's like a presumption for certain uh, disabilities, but nevertheless, when I what I'm trying to say is that if there's some element of violence in the person's character uh, regarding their conviction or whatever the um, disabling uh, uh, classification is, whether it's mental health or whatever, if there's some sort of violence uh, that's indicated, I think they're likely to uphold it. Even Barrett, when she was a circuit judge, and I was doing research on this, getting ready to file suit against nonviolent felons as a disability. I was researching because she just got put on the bench, her past decisions, and she had a decision where she basically, I'm just going to paraphrase, but basically said that, you know, nonviolent felons should have guns. But there was some discussion about drugs and drugs in and of themselves, Steve, as you know, are not dangerous. However, people that engage in drug activities are generally are in a dangerous environment and are dangerous themselves. So even with drugs, they were kind of attaching that violent element. So I think that that word violence is going to keep coming back in these analysis. And I think in this, it's directly violent, right? You have a protection order because you're potentially violent. I think that we'll uphold it, but we'll see. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a couple things that uh, that don't add up necessarily, but are politically they sound good. So just because it's domestic, I don't think that that, that connects logically uh, and factually with your propensity for violence. I mean, in fact, maybe the opposite. I may, I'm sort of arguing in the policy weeds at this point. I, I, I agree with you, by the way. Um, but, you know, people think domestic violence, it, it's going to make somebody more likely to go commit gun violence. And I think, I think there are as many false accusations of domestic violence that there are accurate or true ones, and maybe more, yeah. actually. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's just one of those areas that's become a hotbed, uh, maybe political theater topic that, uh, that people like to talk well, the about. Problem- the problem with, I don't want to get too much into domestic violence because that's a whole other disability if you're convicted. But the big problem with it is, is that, you know, there's like four ways to get your gun rights back at the federal level. Um, a set aside, which is what people essentially use when they're wrongfully convicted. So that almost never happens. Yep. Then you have an expungement. Violent offenses in most states can't be expunged. Um, and then you have, uh, 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 so we set aside expungement. Then we have uh, restoration of rights. And in most states, you can't restore a domestic violent offense. And then the big one, pardon. There's no governor that's going to pardon somebody for committing domestic violence, even if it was false. It's just not going to happen, uh, generally speaking. Um, so it's a real problem. It's a real problem because people do, like you said, get wrongfully accused of this. They get kind of just they just they're just along for the ride. Yep. Right. 
and it's being done to them and they have no say in it. They have no voice in it, especially if they can't hire a good lawyer. They can't hire a good lawyer. They're pretty much just out of luck for the most part. So, well, and anyway. I noticed defendant folks charged with domestic violence. Um, you know, there, and there's a lot of marginal cases, folks. I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting that domestic violence doesn't happen. It does, and you know, I've actually walked clients of mine who I believe to be victims of domestic violence down to the prosecutor's office, and uh, and literally walk them through the process of filing charges. I'm not an advocate for domestic violence in any way, shape, or form. But there's an attitude that goes with it of, of, of like lethargy. I think you, you sort of described it. What you were describing, Derek, is like sort of throw up your hands and say, you yeah. know what? Screw it. I don't care. And I think guys particularly do this because a lot of times it's going on in the context of a divorce and your life is upside down. You've been upended. You're, it feels like you're losing everything. You feel like a complete abject failure. Uh, your marriage is over. You're losing all your money. You're, you're never going to see your kids again. You know, this whole parade of horribles that you you play this movie in your head and you just think, you know what? It's, you use the two magic words, F it, and you just don't fight. You just say, take whatever, give it all away. I don't care. Um, oh, woe is me. And then you re- you wake up, uh, you know, a year later and you realize that you can't go hunting or you can't, you're, you've got to get rid of all your firearms or you get charged with a crime even worse because you weren't really sure exactly what you were doing and you got caught with a gun. So don't take this stuff for granted. As Derek said, get a good lawyer. I know a couple right here. As yeah, it, as, it, as it turns out, <clears throat> or at um, least I can definitely. Well, they'll hire you. I'll consult on the gun part of it. Yep. Which, um, which, 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 if you didn't know, Derek and I do that quite a bit. <laughs> All right. Uh, the last uh, our uh, item I want to talk about today, Steve, for our current event segment here is uh, the federal a federal judge blocking a nationwide enforcement of the pistol brace. So let me just tee this up for us. I, I did back, I think, in the summer. A YouTube video, for those of you who don't know, I have a YouTube channel. Look us up. We have about 50,000 followers, um, munitions group. Anyhow, I did a video of an update, and there, I think it was the Fifth Circuit had put a stay that applied to certain people that had still had these, these arm braces on, on their rifles. And so, so to be clear, what we're talking about generally is AR-15-style firearms that have this arm brace that's sold with it that's supposed to wrap around the forearm to provide stability, but people uh, over the years have been shouldering them because it basically looks like a stock and functions like a stock. ATF didn't like that, and Biden made sure that we got a new rule passed, and that rule gave a grace period for people to register those items as a National Firearms Act regulated item. So basically, there's a list of people that own these guns. And if you didn't register it within that amnesty period, then you still can register them, um, but you have to pay a tax. So uh, where are we at today, Steve, under the uh, this most recent ruling from early November? Well, the, the, this is seesawing back and forth. And, and what I mean by that is, as it works its way up the system, people challenge that rulemaking power by the executive branch in this situation, Biden. And what everybody is doing is asking for an injunction of this law. They're saying this law should be struck down. And in the meantime, we want to prevent, we want to stay or in, or not permit the government to enforce the law. And, you know, at first they would say one judge says no, and then it gets reversed. And another judge says no, I'm going to stay it. And all of this while the, the courts meander or while the case meanders up through the courts, and I think ultimately this is going to the U.S. Supreme Court, at least I would think so. Um, but it looks like there was a judge recently that actually did stay the enforcement of the law and uh, it, it sort of is a, a, maybe a little bit of a, um, a foreshadowing that uh, things are going to go against the ATF on this one. Well, I think that foreshadowing started, I believe, um, I think it was Sixth Circuit, wasn't it, that overturned the uh, bump stock ruling? Yep. Um, anyhow, yeah, this was a district court, uh, and this came down, I think, it was the, like the week of November 8th. It was like that first week. It was a Wednesday. And basically granted a nationwide stay. Now, the courts before that kind of were – hesitant to give a nationwide stay for a variety of reasons. But this court said, look, 
this affects so many people. It creates so much confusion. We almost have to do it. Uh, and I do believe that it will be struck down. I do believe it's an unconstitutional uh, use of the president's uh, executive rulemaking. I do believe that they essentially are legislating without Congress and it should be struck down. Yeah. So um, you you just threw in a bunch of buzzwords there. And this is sort of what I've been watching uh, sort of intently now for the last uh, five, six years, maybe four or five years. We have a court, I think, a court system that is getting ever increasingly um, disdainful about the administrative state of government and, and the rulemaking power of our administrative agencies. And when, when you hear people talk about the deep state, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about like um, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, or the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, that basically make their own rules and they, they can change their own rules and then enforce them as law. And this is where Congress sort of punts they, they delegate authority to an administrative agency to go, all right, you guys go figure out the rules on it. And there are limits to how much of that can go on. And, and you know, I hate to say it, but the left loves the administrative state of government because they can act and do things uh, through executive order because the administrative state sits under the executive branch of government. Um, this is like when you saw uh, Biden signing all those executive orders uh, right after he was elected. These are all, in theory, he's, he's ordering administrative agencies to take action. Um, I, I think we have a court now that is poised to gut it. I think if anybody really wants to dig into this and geek out, like you would say, Derek, on the, on the law, go read the Chevron Doctrine and do uh, maybe even go all the way back to like um, executive power of Youngstown Sheet and Tube. Uh, there's there like check out the, the the history of the administrative state of government, and I think the farther the government pushes its power in this arena, they may they may win like individual little battles on this. But they, they're risking, they're, they're so exposed, like the Battle of the Bulge, you know, they're so exposed that they might lose their very authority uh, to act in the first place. And the, I would like nothing more. I, I think the administrative state of government is the source of more corruption in this country than any other uh, individual or government combined. Hey, and to give, uh, you mentioned the Chevron doctrine. So just to kind of give a little bit more feedback on the current status the reason the previous courts, like the Fifth Circuit, had basically put a stay on, on the the uh, arm brace rule, um, basically it had nothing to do with the underlying merits of of the item itself, right? The brace, there was no analysis of that. Had to do with the process and getting the rule passed, right? So it, generally, uh, if, if a change of the rule was not what we call an I mentioned this at the beginning of this episode, a logical outgrowth of the proposed regulation. Uh, then there's all these different things that have to happen. More time needs to be given for comment, et cetera, et cetera. And basically what the courts have said is that the rule has been vi has violated the log logical outgrowth test. Um, so that's a fancy way of just saying that the process was violated. And right. that's why they put a stay in the order. So, right. So if we get this, in other words, if this thing gets overturned and reversed, it may not be simply because uh, of the rule itself. It might be because the authority to create the rule uh, or the government exceeded its authority in creating the rule. And, you know, you would say, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, is that if you do it, if the courts strike this down because of the government's, they've exceeded its power to create such a rule, then you can take that laterally and apply that in many, many other situations that's going to significantly limit the power of government. I could not be happier with such a thing yeah. if that happened. Well, the, I mean, on the inverse of that, Steve, they could just simply make sure they do it correctly the next time and have the exact same rule. They, right. They, I mean, it, it will depend it, upon how the courts strike it. Exactly. That's what I'm I'm just letting our, our our listeners know that, you know, so far I haven't heard anything of any real substance other than this administrative stuff, uh, which can be rectified if they try to do it again, in my opinion, at least. 
Yeah. So there's another, you know, there's another sort of uh, notion just to here we're, we're digging deep here, but there's, there's a notion of called judicial restraint where courts don't want to handle things that aren't in, that aren't a case or controversy in front of them. In other words, if you can settle a case on some administrator or um, technicality, or maybe they, they didn't follow the procedural rules to get there in theory, courts should restrain themselves and not jump the gun no pun intended, and go decide the merits of something that should have been done on the procedure. So the idea is they kick it back, they fix the procedure, and then they come back on the actual merits. Sometimes courts do that, sometimes they don't. I'd like to think that we always exercise judicial restraint, but it's morally, it's more usually a court just doesn't feel like dealing with it at the time, so they punt. Well, that's all I got, Steve, as far as current events. Um, you know, for our listeners, sorry that we were kind of MIA for a little bit. I know Steve's been busy. I was traveling. Uh, holidays are coming up. How's your your holidays shaping up, Steve? Uh, everything looking good for those. Uh, we'll get to the ammo can here, and it's relevant. So, uh, for those who uh, who enjoy hunting, Ohio gun season for deer happens always the week after Thanksgiving. Speaking of holidays, and uh, that'll bring you, you to. The, so you haven't been hunting yet? No, I went last. We we you were did. down for. Uh, we went we went out uh, after Thanksgiving. Uh, that was the week, and there's another gun season coming up. Not this weekend, but next weekend. There's a two day extended gun season, and then we have muzzle loader. Uh, in January. So Derek, I get questions all the time. I mean, so I'm, I'm sort of, I'm combining several ammo can type questions. The first I get is, uh, I had a buddy who was going to come down and hunt from Michigan and he says, do I need to buy a, a rifle or can I use my slug gun? Which, uh, I said, well, look, you can do, you can do both. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I thought Ohio was slugs only. Well, we, we changed the rules and you can actually use straight wall cartridge guns, yeah. rifles, uh, in Ohio now to hunt deer. So, which is an interesting because it's, I, I love how the industry responds to this. They've created all sorts of new rounds, like the 350 mm-hmm. legend. Uh, there's lots of great rifles you can use now in Ohio. I happen to use a Henry, uh, lever action 44 mag, which I, uh, I freaking nice. love it just because it's a cool gun to carry around the world. I got a Marlin 4570. It's one of my favorite rifles. I, the, there's a whole set of Marlins and all those calibers are phenomenal. So yeah, you can use a straight wall cartridge. What are those generally, Jake? You got like the 44 mag, a 45, I think you've got a 357. Yeah, long coal, 4570, uh, anything that's just not, not, not neck down. I mean, that's, that's yep. the way it is. So, yeah. uh, yeah, you can use it. Now, the other question I get all the time and I'll shoot this one your way is, Muzzle loaders are muzzle loaders uh, subject to the basic firearms restrictions for those who have their uh, uh, who have a uh, disability, or is that treated somehow differently? Depends on the state. Uh, under federal law, a muzzle loader, a true muzzle loader, meaning it cannot take cartridge loads, and meaning it does not have uh, like the federal fire stick where everything the powder and the primer are already in it, and you just put that in the, into the breech. It's got to be a true muzzle loader, you know, ball and powder. You're ramming the stick down the barrel, all that, and it cannot be converted to car- take cartridge loads. That is not considered a firearm under federal law. However, for instance, in the state of Ohio, it is. So regulations depend on the state when it comes to muzzle loaders. Yeah. So be careful. Uh, just because you can't hunt with a gun doesn't mean you can hunt with a muzzle loader. So. Uh, all right. Well, with that, we'll wrap it up. Another riveting episode of Munitions Podcast. Uh, we do have a website that I've kept promising it, it, it is now. We have both seen it. We've reviewed the content. It looks good and it's coming out. You'll be able to get all your uh, all our back episodes. We'll be have a place to comment. There'll be lots of stuff uh, to be had on the website. In the meantime, you can always check out Derek's YouTube uh, channel, which again is phenomenal. Check it out, Derek. How do they find it? Munitions Group, or you can look us up at munitions, uh, munitionsgroup.com. By the way, Steve, when is that website going live? Do you know? Uh, we should have it up probably by the next episode. Perfect. Yeah, I know we. Uh, I've looked at it, everybody, and it looks great. 
Uh, it's simple, but you know, it'll get you guys uh, any information you need for the podcast. All right. Awesome. Well, till next time, folks, this is Munitions Podcast celebrating December 7, 2023.